You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6pm on June 4, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Let's uh, turn to our reading now from John chapter 20. We've been uh, progressively uh, working through the Gospel of John and uh, we're getting close to the end. Only one more chapter after this one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful, wonderful story when we read about the risen Lord. Lord, help us to believe in the risen Christ, that he has risen. Lord, help us to have that faith. A simple faith, yet we have not seen him like Mary did or John or Peter. 
Lord, help us to believe in your word and these words because we ask it in your name. Amen. The whole Christian message hinges on the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is not some metaphor, it's not some symbol for something that is abstract. The resurrection is not a myth that's been invented by religious figures, nor it is a deception used by the strong to manipulate the weak. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history. He lives. He was raised with the same body in which he suffered, in which he bled and died, and he lives. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, just as we're sitting here in church. He fills definite space in a definite place in a glorified human body. That's what Christians claim. That's what the narrative of the New Testament tells us. Now, as we focus, I want us today, tonight to focus on Mary. As we focus on Mary's encounter with the risen Christ, it's important to understand that Jesus lives. This passage is making a claim. Indeed, it's, and in that claim, it's indeed making an offer to you. Because Jesus is alive, the Christian gospel is a means by which you can meet him for yourself, just as Mary met him in that garden tomb on that first Easter Sunday. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and, of course, The Lord of the Rings, once coined the phrase that he believes is important with good storytelling. He invented the word eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Token uses this word to point to the resurrection. The resurrection is the ultimate eucatastrophe. Now, we all know what a catastrophe is. A catastrophe is a disaster that when it occurs, it could not be prevented. As disasters descended suddenly, there's this glorious re reversal. So then the resurrection is the great eucatastrophe. You see, Mary, in our passage, dramatically encounters a eucatastrophe. She's overcome with grief and eventually her eyes are open to see the risen Lord standing before her. In our passage, especially from verses 11 to 18, when Jesus meets with Mary, he says three things to her. In verse 15, he speaks a word of correction. In verse 16, he speaks a word of calling. And then in verse 17, he speaks a word of commission. But before he, he uh, speaks these three things, we need to examine Mary's misunderstandings. A chapter opens on the first day of the week. It's very early on that first Sunday morning. It's most likely still dark. And John says that Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus' tomb. In the other gospel accounts, you'll read about a whole company of women 
who were Jesus' followers that accompanied Mary. But in John's Gospel, his focus is just on Mary Magdalene. So he doesn't mention the other women. John in verse 2 gives us a clue that the other women were there also. In verse 2, we're told she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. The other disciple whom Jesus loved, of course, is a reference to John. And she said to the disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She's there as the group's spokesperson. The group has discovered an empty tomb and we don't know where they have put him. The other Gospels, of course, tell us what happened. While Mary was reporting this to the disciples, the other women saw angels in the tomb who explained that Jesus had been raised and those women returned to the disciples eventually as well and told them what the angels had said. But at this stage, the disciples dismiss their message. Meanwhile, Simon, Peter and John race to the tomb to see what's happened. And Mary follows along behind them. When they get there and they look in and they see the grave clothes folded and the face cloth lying in the place by itself, we read in verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He must have been a faster runner, a bit fitter than Peter. He saw and believed. They saw and believed. That is, they believed the report that the body was missing. And John says in verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And as they leave the tomb, no doubt they were dismayed and they were heartbroken all over again that the Lord's body is now missing. And in verse 11 we're told that Mary is left behind. She's outside the tomb and she's weeping. She's heartbroken. She's devastated as her tears are a telltale of her love and her, and her devotion to the Lord. Her grief is so profound, pro, profound that in verse 12, when two angels appear to her, she barely registers this wonderful phenomenon. In verse 12, it says that, and, and uh, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. In all of scripture, this is the only place where angels are, are ever described as being sitting down. One is seated at the head and one is at the foot of where Jesus' body was, emphasising the emptiness of the tomb. He's not here. The great Je Jehadis Voss connects the location and the posture of the angels sitting at either end of the, uh, of the place where the body where Christ had been laid, he, he connects it with the golden cherubim, the angelic statues that were positioned at each end of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat, of course, was a place where once a year the high priest would go in into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and he would uh, 
make payment for the sin of the people. He would, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And so this, this lid of the ark had these cherubims. Is John alluding and suggesting that here is a picture of satisfaction? Atonement made in the blood of Jesus and accepted before God. Whatever the symbolism, whatever the significance of these visiting angels, Mary misses it. She doesn't seem to notice. It's almost as if she has a conversation with the angels every day. Do you have one of those conversations? I wish I did. None of it penetrates. Instead, when the angels ask her, ask her why are you weeping? They're astonished. Why would you be weeping, Mary? Because he's alive, you see? Her reply in tears is a matter of fact. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now note here in the language a small note of intimacy. When she was the spokeswoman for the group of women, she went to the disciples and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now that she's alone in the tomb grieving, she says, they have taken my Lord away and he's gone and I don't know where he is. And at that moment of intimacy and vulnerability, Mary then becomes aware of someone standing behind her. In verse 14, she turns around and Jesus is standing there, alive again from the grave. But she doesn't know that it was Jesus. You see, at this stage in her grief, her tears are blinding her from seeing. However, even the, the disciples didn't recognise Jesus immediately after the resurrection. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, of course, knew about the cross but they hadn't learned that Jesus had risen. And when they walked with Jesus, like Mary, they too were blind until Jesus opened their eyes. You see, the blindness here isn't simply psychological or emotional or physical. It's rather profoundly spiritual. When Jesus speaks to Mary and repeats the angelic question, Woman, why are you weeping? Who is it you are looking for? She doesn't recognise him. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. In this moment of Mary's agony and grief, John wants us to feel some of the joy in it. You see, Mary's tears are about to be replaced with a celebration. And John is leading us to the sheer wonder of the joy of the resurrection. Here is the Lord, alive from the grave but she thinks he's there to look after the roses. That's if they grew in Israel. I don't think they had roses in their garden, not like out the front of my house on the side here. But her love is not enough. She loves him, but she doesn't yet understand and she's forgotten his promises. So often Jesus had told them that the Son of Man must suffer and will be crucified and buried, and on the third day he will rise again from the dead. And she and the disciples didn't yet understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. 
there's love and there's care for Jesus, but she hasn't found faith in his promises. The tomb was empty. An empty tomb should have been cause for rejoicing, for our Saviour is keeping his promises, but instead she forgets all that Jesus has said about him rising. And all she can see is her grief. Now there's an important lesson for us here that we should recognise. Mary loves and she cares for Jesus deeply. But she doesn't yet believe his promises. We need to remember the promises of God, the promises of the Lord Jesus. We can love Jesus. We can have an affection for Christian things. But that isn't enough, friends. Without faith in Christ, his promises will leave us behind. Only faith can open our eyes to see the risen Christ. If you're here tonight because of some affinity for Christian things, it's not enough unless you believe on the Lord Jesus. And I don't mean to believe in some vague, ill-defined sense of uh, assenting to the idea about Jesus. I mean you must personally come to rely on and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself personally. Only Jesus can rescue you from spiritual blindness that every one of us has by nature, by a sinful nature. But faith in Jesus alone opens our eyes. So the first thing that is Mary's confusion, she's so familiar with Jesus and she's so familiar with his message, yet at this crucial moment she couldn't see because she doesn't yet believe. And then Jesus speaks three words. First word is a word of correction in verse 15. But he speaks it with gentleness, tenderness and kindness. But Jesus corrects her nevertheless. Verse 15 says, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Why are there tears, Mary? If it's me you're looking for, why in the world would you look for me in an old tomb? when I'm not there. No, Mary, the work is done. Death is dead. I have risen. Why are you weeping now, Mary? So here's a word of correction. Now, many of us have a tendency to have personalities that may be described as, as glass, glass half empty. We often look at things pessimistically. Most people are not optimistic. If I ask you, how are you? Some of you will tell me, well, it could be worse. So often many of us say, oh, I'm good, and we fib. Most of us tend to be glass half empty kind of people, which means that we all need to be reminded that Jesus is alive. The stone was rolled away, the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied. The Lord of life has shattered the bonds of death and stepped alive again, and stepped alive again from the tomb never, ever, ever to die. And so while there may yet be cause for weeping, there are, no, there are now grounds for hope. There are grounds for joy. 
Because on this first Resurrection Sunday, no earthly sorrow can ever extinguish. Jesus lives. Praise the Lord. So, friends, I want you to lift up your head. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. With the dawn of that first day, that first Lord's Day, that first Easter Sunday morning, the promise that one day death will be undone and sorrow and sadness will be no more. And the Lamb of God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And this promise was guaranteed in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ when he rose from the grave. And so there's a word of correction here. Lift up your head. Christ is risen, so weep no more. And Jesus' second word is a word of calling in verse 16. Mary thinks he's the gardener. And so she explains her fears that someone has moved Jesus' body. Perhaps it was you, she says. Tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus uh, thinks enough is enough and calls her name. He calls her name by her name, Mary. And this is one of the most beautiful moments in all of Holy Scripture. The risen Christ calls one of his dear ones to himself by her familiar name. She turned her back on him. And when she'd asked the question, she's now back looking into the tomb. But when she hears her name, suddenly her eyes are opened. She now knows who this man is and she turns again to look and says, uh, no doubt with tears, Rabboni. It's actually not just teacher. It, only, it doesn't just mean teacher. It means my teacher. My teacher. And so here we see once again a beautiful note of intimacy. My teacher, it's you. When he called her name, her eyes were opened. And she was facing the wrong way, looking for the living among the dead in a dusty old tomb where Jesus was not. But at his call, she turns to him and grief is replaced with gladness and sorrow with celebration. Here is an individual and a personal call who calls her by name. And Jesus does this to all of us, actually. John chapter 10, verse 3 reminds us, I am the good shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I call my sheep by name. If you're one of Jesus' sheep, he calls you by name. The call of Jesus Christ in the gospel, when it comes to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, it lifts the veil, it dispels the darkness, and it opens eyes. Jesus' invitation to you is not some scattershot thrown out at random. The fact that you're here today, tonight, hearing the word of Christ is profoundly personal. The risen Christ is now giving to you the same invitation that he's issued to Mary. He's calling to you. He's calling to you personally. He's calling to you individually. 
and is calling to you intimately. And he's calling you to come and to see who he is, to turn from the empty tomb because if you're looking into the empty tomb, you're looking in all the wrong places. You're looking in the wrong places for life, for peace, for pardon and for a clean conscience. You're looking in all the wrong places. You need to hear Christ calling you to himself. Look to him and your eyes will be opened and you'll see the Lord, the giver of life himself, risen in victory over the grave. And when this happens, nothing will ever be the same again. He's calling you as well as he called Mary. Are you listening? Are you listening to his call? And will you answer the call and turn from any wrong directions and look to Christ alone? He's the one that you need. Now finally in verses 17 and 18 we have Jesus' word of commission. When Mary suddenly sees who he is and she does what I suspect most of us would do. She reaches out to take hold of him in her joy, in her wonder. But Jesus understands that behind this touch there's more than simply a touch of affection and gratitude. There's something else in Mary's heart. There's a, there's a desire to hold on to him, to hold him down as it were, to put Christ in his box. I'm never going to let you out of my sight again. Now that you're back, you're here to stay, aren't you? There's something that's going on in Mary's heart. It's understandable. She's just trying to cling to him, trying to possess him. She doesn't understand what, what needs to take place next. Jesus is not here to stay. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father, there to take his place as King of kings and Lord of lords and to pour out his spirit upon the church so that the church may be equipped to take the good news that he lives and to take it to the ends of the earth. And so he says to her in verse 17, Do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. The issue is not that he can't be touched. It's not that he's immaterial. Later, of course, he would say to Thomas in the upper room, he would say, put your finger in, in the nail marks in my hands. Put your hands into the wound in my side where that Roman spear punctured his heart. He rose in the same body with which he suffered. He is physically risen. The issue isn't physicality. The issue isn't that he can't stay and it's better. The issue rather is that he can't stay. Can't stay. It's better for Mary. It's better for the disciples. It's better for all of us that he ascends, that he has ascended. And that's Jesus' point. And he wants Mary, instead of clinging to him, he says, no, Mary, I have a job for you. I have a job for you. And he gives her a commission. He sends her back. He sends her back to the disciples with good news. 
not just that Christ is risen, but why he's risen. What is it, is, is it that his cross and the empty tomb and soon ascended mastery over all things will give to us? What is it? What is the message she is to proclaim? It's an oddly phrased message if you think about it. When we look at verse 17, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, why this emphasis on the fatherhood of God? Well, simply because of the great benefit, the great benefit that comes to us from the sufferings and from the exaltation of our Saviour, of course, it comes to us is our adoption into the family of God. You are my brothers, Jesus says, and my father is now your father. You come now to belong to my family because I died and I rose and I ascend to reign. You're welcome into my family, Mary. He lives so that you can have a place in the family. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection is about. Actually, that's what it's about quite literally for many of us here today. It's about family. It's about family in more ways than you thought. There's an invitation to become part of God's family through the Lord Jesus himself, to turn to him in faith, the faith, of course, that opens eyes and sees the Lord and trusts him to be your rescuer along as being your king. There's an invitation to trust him. And when you do, you become part of God's family. John 1, chapter 12 reminds us, Yet to all who did not receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. There's no greater privilege for a wayward, hell-deserving sinner like me to be called a child of God, an heir of God, and a co-heir with Christ. That's the invitation that's extended to us, to all of us, as Jesus calls your name. He calls your name in the gospel and he bids you to come to him. He's saying to you, come, come home to your true family. You will become my brother, my dear sister, and my father will be your father forever. So, friends, may the Lord give us the grace tonight to hear the voice of the King Jesus who is speaking our names. And may he help us to turn from that empty tomb to see him, the glorious risen Christ. And may he take us and place us in his family. Amen. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that indeed through faith in you we can become part of your family, that you adopt us into your family. Lord, we, we don't deserve any of this, but we are so thankful. Lord, help us to recognise the risen Christ, to see the risen Christ in our thoughts, in our experience, 
as we go about our lives every day. Lord, help us to go out in the victory of the Lord this week, knowing that we serve a risen Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at essendonpresbyterianchurch.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.